Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Pope John XXIII was one of the more consequential leaders of the Catholic Church in the last 500 years. It was Pope John who convened the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II, as it is known. And it was an attempt to drag the Catholic Church out of the Middle Ages, kicking and screaming as it went. Vatican II called on Roman Catholicism to be more ecumenical and cooperative. It encouraged dialogue with other faith groups. It allowed for contemporary music to be incorporated into worship. And of course, it allowed the Mass to be celebrated in the common language of the participants, not restricted to Latin as it had been for centuries on end. No one could have, had, could have suspected that Pope John would be the one to set these events in motion. He was a true priest, a pastor, not a hot-blooded revolutionary. And before that, he was just a poor son of a poor Italian sharecropper, the firstborn of 13 children. Can you imagine? But he was bright, he was devoted, and he joined the Franciscans at the early age of 15. And I don't know if that was due to his devotion or the fact that he just wanted to get away from all of his siblings, possibly. That family of origin was important to him, particularly the relationship that he had with his father, Giovanni. And for all that Pope John said and wrote, this little quote is one that endures. It is easier for a father to have children than for children to have a real father. It's easier for a father to have children than for children to have a real father. The weight of that statement has never been lost on me. I've become a father three times, and when the experience was new each time, it was not filled with warmth and fuzzies. A couple welcomes a new baby, and it's all joy and gratitude. No, it is not. Every time I left the hospital with a new baby, that eight pounds in the car seat felt like two metric tons on my shoulders. What have we done? You know we're never going to get rid of this thing, right? So much for disappearing to hike the AT or walk the Camino or living in a 400 square foot tiny house. I can never stop working now. The weight eases, but it never goes away, or at least it hasn't gone away for me yet. The responsibility of parenthood lingers as it should. After all, it is easier for a father to have children than for children to have a real father. I became a father when I was young, before this conspicuous white stuff that now covers my face. All my tendencies, good and bad, had not yet become habit. 
I was pliable and teachable. I had plenty of energy for those bottle feedings in the night, coaching Little League and loads of laundry and school schedules. And while I know plenty of men who do this, and I have dear friends on this track, even as I stand here this morning, the thoughts of becoming a new father at my, at my age now or older, it's just exhausting to think about it, much less to have to do it. The weight of it, the zeal that it requires, I, I, I don't know if I could stand it. When Bryce came into our family, I had to make a quick decision. We already had Blaze. His adoption was planned, scheduled even. But Bryce's arrival, I would learn, was like all things Bryce would do, very unexpected and unpredictable. And I don't have time for the whole story, but I will give you a little bit of it today. I, I was at home, it was Easter evening, and the phone rang, and it was the social worker at my local hospital where I knew everyone and often volunteered as a chaplain. This is what she said. We have a child here that I have discovered. The nurses were hiding him from me. He's been here a week. And he will go into protective custody tomorrow if you don't come down here and get him right now. I said, we have a baby. Thank you. I know that's why I called. You've got car seats, you've got diapers, you've got everything. I said, can I have a minute? And as I like to say, me and Jesus and Jack took a walk. Jesus of Nazareth and Jack Daniel. <laughs> I don't advise that. The Jesus part, yes. The Jack Daniels, not so much. I don't know if that's helpful when you're making a big decision. <laughs> I wonder if similar jumbled feelings are what run roughshod over Zechariah. He's an old dude, and he's about to become a father for the first time. He had been praying for a kid, hoping for something absolutely miraculous, but when that eight pounds is actually in the car seat and you're driving home and there's no refund available and no instruction manual and no warranty information and you have bought it before you even had the chance to break it, well, that's where praying for something and actually getting it are two completely different things. As Oscar Wilde said, there are only two tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want and the other is getting it. For this Advent season, we are going to hear the stories of two couples, four individuals, as they become parents. There will be Mary, you can't have Christmas without her, the mother of God, mother of Jesus, the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Her partner is Joseph, his faith and his response of grace to a most unexpected pregnancy is not to be diminished either. Then there is this older couple, the parents of John the prophet, parents of John the Baptist. His mother is Elizabeth, and his father is this man, Zechariah. We will hear from each individual, each different story, from four different perspectives over the course of Advent. And I have assigned to myself, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. I'm the wrong gender and perspective to speak for Mary or Elizabeth. I'm too old to speak for Joseph. But Zechariah, man, he is my Goldilocks. I know this guy. 
we, the two gray-bearded fathers, who are of the professional clergy class and calling, graced with unexpected sons, bending beneath the weight of responsibility, and quick the two of us are to babble on and on and even to argue with God in the process. Zechariah was a priest. He and his wife Elizabeth did not have children. As I said, they are older now, past the expected time of being parents, but they still pray for a baby. And suddenly, lo and behold, their prayers are answered. Zechariah is down at the church one morning looking over his sermon notes before he goes out to lead the church worship service and an angel shows up beside his desk. And not just any angel, but Gabriel. Only two angels are ever named in the Bible. One is named Michael, the warrior of heaven. And then there is Gabriel, Yahweh's Hermes, God's messenger, God's special agent. And Gabriel brings good news. Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And not just any son, the child will be the one who will prepare the way of the Lord for the Messiah. Because God's deliverer finally is coming. Zechariah does not get the benefit of a choice. He does not get to take a walk with Jesus and Jack or anybody else for that matter. He does not get to pilfer the well-meaning social worker with questions or wonder about all the HIPAA violations that must now be taking place. He must lodge the questions with the messenger before him. He only gets out one. And he does. Luke 1.18 How can I be sure this will happen? I mean, when you don't know what to say, and especially if you're clergy, you know you have to say something, he ends up asking a stupid question. Now, I know you've been told there are no stupid questions. I don't think it is stupid necessarily. I think it's a good question. Gabriel does not. This extraterrestrial, other worldly, burning, celestial messenger of God has just traveled centillion of miles to deliver this telegram to this old, crusty preacher. And the old, crusty preacher is asking for ID. He's been praying for this. Now it arrives and he has a real hard time believing it. And Gabriel is not pleased. Apparently, Gabriel has a hair trigger. He answers Luke 1, 19 and 20. I am Gabriel. I love that. That's one of the best lines in the whole Advent story. Dude, I am Gabriel. Ever seen that before? I am. Who, who do you think you're talking to here? When I'm not down here trying to get through the thick-headed people like you, I hang out with God. And because of this one question, Gabriel takes a moment of personal privilege and shuts him up for the next nine months. Not only has Zechariah never had an experience like this, apparently Gabriel has never had an experience like this. Because usually when Gabriel shows up, people just sort of melt down like a lava lamp and begin listening and saying, yes, sir. Not, not Zechariah. 
He's got questions. So Gabriel says, shut your mouth. Now to Zechariah's defense, I think there can be some bad questions. But overall, I think it is very good to ask questions. Ask why things are the way they are. Ask how things work the way they do. Ask when. When can I anticipate better results? Ask what. What can I expect or not expect? Ask who. Who is responsible for this? Who has the answers? And don't be afraid to ask these questions of God. Gabriel is impatient, it would appear, but God is not. God can bear all the questions that you will ever ask. Or else God would not be God. Doesn't mean that God is going to give you answers. And when you do get some answers, they may not be the answers that you anticipated. But I really don't know how one leads a life of genuine faith without a healthy dose of holy interrogation once in a while. Questions have to be asked. Years ago, I had an individual get after me a little bit because of the people I would sometimes quote up here. Well, that guy's a heretic that you quoted. Oh, and that woman, she's definitely a heretic. And I said to this person, heretic's a pretty strong word. Uh, I don't think these people are heretics. I think they ask some really good questions about things that should be questioned. That didn't help. There are things that should never be questioned, he thundered back. And to do so is to be a heretic. No, it's not. No, it's not. There are thousands and thousands of true believers today. They love Jesus. They are doing their best to understand God, but they are, to borrow the phrase, deconstructing. That's the most popular phrase being used today for this process, borrowed from postmodern philosophy, of taking the big pieces of faith, taking the faith that we have inherited, taking the faith that is the faith of everything we have been told, and breaking it down to see if it can really hold up. That's a process many people who have passed through this building over the years have been working through. It's a process I have been working through. The late Phyllis Tickle, one of those alleged heretics, had a saying. She said this, every 500 years or so, Christianity has a rummage sale. I love that. And she's right. We have these massive transitions where all the questions finally accumulate in such a large pile that organizational and belief systems start breaking down beneath the weight and we have to come up with some better answers. The emergence of the Roman church around 500, the divide between East and West in 1000 AD, the Reformation in 1500 and whatever this is that we're in today. In each and every case, those who asked the questions and proposed new solutions or different understandings were always labeled heretics. But all they were doing were dragging some of those musty old boxes to the curb for pickup day. Because they didn't need that any longer. I used to bristle at being called one, a heretic. 
I think Garrett is joking when he calls me a heretic regularly. Are you joking? Oh, okay, got it, got it. But I don't care anymore. I am more comfortable asking new questions than I am sticking with unsustainable answers from the past. I have no stones to throw at those who remain comfortable with everything they have been told. I almost envy them in some ways because they're so settled and so undisturbed. But I can't unlearn my life's experiences. I can't unsee what I have seen. I can't unhear what I have heard. And sometimes all I can do is wave my hands about like Zachariah and let people wonder what in the world happened to him while he was in that room by himself. And I think Zechariah is a good example of this. Because when you can't talk for nine months, it gives you a whole lot of time to think. To re-examine. To ruminate. And that is a very good thing. Especially for those of us who are so accustomed to running our mouths. We need experience or life or Gabriel or failure or frustration, or a faith that doesn't seem to match our circumstances to say to us, now hush your mouth. It's time to be quiet. I've had a number of great silences over the course of my life. Times of forced stillness. And I'll tell you that, stillness usually is forced. We don't like to sit still. We don't like to get quiet. Two in particular, one was some 20 years ago. I left the pastorate for multiple reasons. I had no intent whatsoever of returning. You can have it. I'm finished. And that worked out so well. <laughs> and one was just last year recovering from COVID. Just sitting still, laying on your couch for days at a time. Two very different experiences, but they led me to similar places. Questions followed by quiet, which ultimately led to gratitude. It's tough on we talkers, especially those of us like me that I don't even know what I'm thinking until I start talking. Some of you know, some of you are just like that, but it's necessary. We all need to be quiet, to shut our mouths. We all need seasons of reflection, thought times to still the yammering voices around us, within us, and the chattering that comes from us? How else can you process all the questions, unless you're quiet? How else can you make sense of an encounter with God? How else can you be ready to receive what God has to offer? How can you experience Advent if you haven't gotten quiet first? Don't be afraid to ask your questions, but don't be afraid of the quiet that follows. It is the incubator for gratitude. It is the incubator for revelation. You can never sing this song of Zechariah, a song of redemption and deliverance and gratitude and peace, unless you have had the quiet space for that song to first root its way into your heart. I am certain that there were late nights and early mornings when Zechariah 
held little John in his arms. Doing the work that every parent has done. Trying to quiet a fussy baby. The rocking. The lullabies. And what is it about we parents? The rump patting. Do you notice that? You get a baby, everybody starts patting that big fat diaper. And there is something instinctively that every parent does, every person does. We do it naturally and we don't even realize it. We start whispering to that baby who is fussy. And what do we say? Shh. Hush now. Quiet down. Everybody says that to a baby. Because that's what the baby needs. And I think old men with gray beards need that same thing. Too. Shh. Just be quiet. Just be quiet.